Good evening to one and all. I am Anshula Mehta, Assistant Director at Impact and Policy Research Institute, IMPRI, New Delhi. And I welcome you all to episode 16 of our talk series, The State of Gender Equality, Hashtag Gender Gaps, organized by the Gender Impact Studies Center at Impact and Policy Research Institute, along with Gender Center for Research and Innovation and Delhi Post. In this series, we engage with experts on gender issues who share their insights on the challenges and way forward in achieving gender equality based on their work, experience, and research through an intersectional lens. The series explores the role of governance, corporations, civil society, the populace, and other actors in realizing an equitable and just society. Today, we have a talk by Professor Jyoti Chandiramani, Director, Symbiosis School of Economics, Pune, on transforming India 2030 towards gender equality, women and sustainable development goals. The chair for today's session is Professor Govind Kelkar, chairperson of the Gender Impact Studies Center at IMPRI and executive director of Gender Center for Research and Innovation and an eminent professor. We thank you for taking out the time to chair the event and to add your invaluable insight to the deliberation. It is my pleasure to also introduce to you our speaker for today, Professor Jyoti Chandiramani. She has more than 35 years of experience in teaching and research. She is presently the director of Symbiosis School of Economics and the Dean, Faculty of Humanities and Social Sciences at the Symbiosis International University, Pune. She teaches urban economic development, urban mobility, trade, aid and development, and international organization and regional cooperation at the master's level. In 2007, Professor Jyoti was awarded a short-term scholarship at the University of Depot, Indianapolis, to study liberal arts education. In 2013, she was a part of the Indian delegation to Lahore, Pakistan for the 10th South Asian Economic Students Meet, and in 2015. Recently, she was invited to the 5th ASCM Rectors Conference and as a mentor for the Students Forum, ARC5, organized by Charles University in Prague, and the Asia Europe Foundation at Prague in 2016. She was invited to visit Macquarie University to present research work and as visiting faculty in May 2018. Besides writing a couple of textbooks, she has jointly edited a book with Ramanath Cha on perspectives in urban development, issues in infrastructure planning and governance. Her areas of research interest include urban infrastructure, urban transport, urban poverty, and she is presently working on Pune-centric cases. Besides, she keenly studies and follows trends in international development cooperation from the MDGs to the SDGs. She has more than eight PhD students working under her guidance. She has undertaken various research projects and consultancies in collaboration with NABARD, ITDP, Solochna Thapar Foundation, and with reputed think tanks in India. Thank you very much, Professor Jyoti, for joining us today to share your insights on this pertinent theme. With that, I hand over the proceedings to the chair, Professor Govind Kelkar, to make her initial remarks and to then invite Professor Chandiramani to make her presentation. Thank you, Anshula. You did a great job in introducing uh, Professor Chandiramani. Uh, Professor Jyoti Chandiramani is really a great eminent scholar and economist. I had the pleasure of sharing her in, in one of the ISLE Institute of uh, International, no, 
ISLEA stands for the Labor Economics Conference there. And after that, uh, I was also there. So B, she has very unconventional ideas about economics and taking, although she says that she's not a feminist scholar, but she indeed is the issues that raises the feminist issues within economics. So that would be, and we look forward to hearing you, Jyoti. Uh, it's such a great pleasure having you in this forum. Uh, so please go ahead and we will uh, catch up later. Thank you. Thank you. Um, at the outset, I'd like to thank the organizers, um, Impri and Dr. Arjun Kumar for very uh, graciously inviting me. And I accept this invitation with a lot of uh, honor and grace. Thank you, Govindji. Uh, it's a pleasure to have again met you virtually in this day and time. And I uh, also um, say my namaskar to all the experts who are with me on this channel. Um, these are my views that I'm going to present. So um, I'll just start sharing the screen and uh, <clears throat> please go ahead. Yeah. Am I visible? Is my slides visible? Yeah. 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 All right. Um, a very um, warm good evening to people from all over. I know Delhi is very cold. Pune is not as cold as Delhi, but I'm sure we are going to get this virtual platform to connect with everybody. And um, over to my talk for today on gender equality, women, women and sustainable development goals. As I was spending my thoughts for this particular talk, uh, I just thought, you know, where are we moving towards, you know, are we really talking about equality or we're talking about equity and, you know, where on from here, you know? And my thoughts went straight back to Bretton Woods. Um, you know, the, the, the whole, uh, the first part of my talk is really going to be how we really measured an economy with GDP and then later on to limits to growth. And we've now come down to SDGs and the global gender gap as certain qualitative indicators of measuring success of an economy. You know, we, in urban, we talk about the livability index and, uh, a number of such measures that are there uh, over the years. And I think India has signed up for 29 such indices, which they would be, you know, uh, participating in. So moving from here, um, I go straight back to Bretton Woods and Simon Kuznets, uh, Simon Kuznets, uh, you know, measurement of uh, GDP, which was accepted post 1944. And uh, it was, of course, initiated in 1934. And we always looked at economies and their progress through the GDP parameter, very quantitative growth kind of a approach. But as we moved to the 70s, it, the, the kind of um, narrative slightly started getting more broadened in its perspective. So, of course, with uh, the Kuznets curve that we talked about, environmental considerations we're talking about that initially how when your per capita income you know um, uh, what you would say uh, as your per capita income I'll just get my pen forward or my yeah yeah as your per capita income increases your environment initially worsens and then it begins to improve after a certain point of time and uh, we've realized that we've got proved wrong on that front and the same thing happened with inequalities that your incomes will, you know, in, income inequalities would reduce after a particular point of time. Initially, they will increase 
and then the inequalities will reduce. And we have various Oxfam reports and World Economic Forum reports, which say that this doesn't really work. And therefore we move to the 70s, from 40s we move to the 70s, where really we talk about the limits to growth debate. But this was of course talked by Malthus also, you know, uh, when he talked about how population grows at a particular arithmetic progression and uh, I mean geometric progression and you have, you know, food, et cetera, other resources which would not grow at that kind of a fast pace. And in 72, you had your club of Rome, which talked about population and growth in per capita use of resources, uh, co-authored by, uh, you know, uh, Dennis Meadows and his uh, biophysicist wife, that is Donella Meadows, the Norwegian ma management expert, Jorgen Randers, and about 17 researchers who put together their limits to growth theory that came in and how the biosphere has a limited ability to absorb people, you know, human growth, production, pollution, and economic growth. They come to conflict with each other. And this was the narrative that we started looking at, you know. Uh, the first time we really talked about quality of life came in from Morris Davis Morris's uh, work, you know, uh, on the physical quality of life index. And it talked about, uh, literally, it talked about percentage of population, which was literate, mortality rate and expectant expectancy rate. So it brought in two dimensions over here, education, and it talked about health. Moving ahead, we have the famous uh, and uh, Amatya Sen's coined Human Development Index, which was introduced in the uh, 1990s and later on was refined in 2010, again, which talked about health, education, and a decent standard of living. And the revised one really talked about what, what was termed as inequality adjusted human development index. So you could see how the narrative was, you know, at that point of time. It's not as if, you know, you haven't uh, read a lot in literature on, um, you know, gender gaps. Um, I, I still remember, you know, reading when I was a student, you know, Doris Lessing's works where she talked about family and institutions. Uh, family and marriage being two institutions which can be very constraining for a woman. And there was this feminist kind of work which was happening at that, you know, much earlier also. But I, I thought I would leave that aside because that's really multidisciplinary, you know. And um, so the Human Development Index we talked about. And the first time really when you look at the MDGs and goal three really points out to gender equality and empower women. This was something that uh, was very, very meaningful in the eight uh, goals that were taken up, where one goal was prominently addressed for women, 18 targets, 48 indicators that were there. Of course, it also included education, poverty, uh, you know, health, environment, and of course, the global partnerships. So, uh, this is where I feel really the 21st century um, in the global governance order really has talked about, um, you know, gender. I will also say that it was discussed earlier in the UN Declaration for Human Rights. And therefore, you know, it, you, you can trace it back to that also. But I would say in global governance, it got a very, very big uh, push from the MDGs point of view.
So when we looked at the MDGs and I, I, I started looking at the indicators, you know, it was ratio of boys to girls in primary, secondary, tertiary education, share of women in wage employment in the non-agricultural sector. Even today we talk about feminization of agriculture. I'll be speaking about it later. And proportion of seats held by women in, in parliament or in local govern, governance, uh, governments, whether it is uh, on an account of the 73rd and the 74th Constitution Amendment Act, whether it's a gram panchayat, the urban local bodies, etc., And you could see that there was this talk about gender parity in education. And when we look at it in 2018-19, we see that we are somewhere inching closer in terms of the gender parity. Of course, when we compare ourselves with other countries, we fall woefully short on this front. So I, I really put this as one great point for me in terms of gender uh, you know, equality and em women empowerment, beginning in the 21st century, really with the uh, MDGs. Somewhere down the line, we have the you know, Oxford Poverty and Human Development Initiative, which also talked about multidimensional poverty index and women and vulnerability comes in in so many dimensions. And this talked about hunger, this talked about nutrition and health, child mortality, uh, education again came in. And these days when we are looking at it, we are looking at what is a livability, um, you know, pattern of a woman. And, uh, you know, uh, is there this cooking, um, you know, fuel around, sanitation, drinking water, electricity, housing, assets. And I felt that somewhere there was this hidden aspect of women also getting included. When I was looking at, you know, um, the government of India and its uh, um, commitment towards the global, you know, multidimensional poverty index, they actually had a plan in this. And this was taken from, um, you know, the press release where the step one was disaggregate the parameters, step two map schemes, frequency, uh, you know, indicators that are there. Um, you know, uh, frequency um, administrative indicators that are there, identify relevant uh, ministries which are looking into. And the same thing goes with the SDGs as we will move forward. Um, step four is consultation with states, union territories and ministries, defining targets and timelines is step five and priority setting high and medium low you know, uh, on the achievement on different parameters, something that we have been following in the Indian context, be it at the, at the center, be it at the state. And this has become our main focus. Uh, at least we also do cover this in our master's uh, and undergrad with all the kind of project work that is being undertaken by our students from time to time, be it our PhD scholars, be it our master students with dissertations, et cetera. Moving forward to the next uh, slide, we come to the SDG, you know, and SDGs were straight away, we talk about the gender equality um, uh, and empower all women. Uh, I'll just go to the SDG index, uh, one second. Will I be able to? Okay. Um, the fifth goal of the SDGs really talked about gender equality and empower all um, women and girl, you know, and they talked about certain 
uh, targets and indicators. There were 17 goals, 169 targets, and 241 indicators. But it's not just the fifth goal that has impact on women. I think cross-cutting across the 17 goals has, you know, whether it is poverty, whether it is hunger, whether it is health, education, you go across, you know, till, till, till goal 11. And then, of course, when you look at it with environment, you look at it even with partnership and human rights, the 60th and 70th goal, everywhere there is a cross-cutting element. And I think uh, the agenda gets very well defined over there. So here you talk the, the the points that came out when we were looking at the targets was discrimination, violence, you know, addressing harmful practices. Okay, uh, discussion on value and unpaid unpaid care domestic work that is uh, undertaken by women. Uh, talking about how you know policies should promote shared responsibilities within the household and the family. And, you know, um, the low participation of women in, in um, job opportunities that are there ensure women's full and effective participation. We can find that the labor force participation rate is really low in India. And of course, universal access to sexual and reproductive health and reproductive rights. These were all the targets that were identified over there. Um, and then you have the last three sub points, which talks about undertake reforms. Uh, yes, we are going to be discussing that in due course of time, the use of enabling technology, adopt and strengthen sound policies. And uh, I, I'm just hoping I can um, go to the link. Okay, but anyway, we have seen that in the global in the global framework, we stand 117 uh, on the SDG total overall. But when it comes to the SDG dashboard, uh, you know, for India, you can see that on gender equality, we have not made much progress. The indicator list for India talks about sex ratio at birth. It talks about female to male ratio of average earnings, you know, um, um, received during preceding um, calendar month among regular salaried, wage salaried employees, the rate of crime, uh, married women between the age of 15 to 49 who have experienced uh, spousal violence, uh, pro proportion of sexual crimes against girl children, seats won by parliament and female labor force participation rate and operational land holdings. So I could actually, you know, um, put all these uh, right from MDGs to the HDIs to the SDGs and the Global Dimensional Poverty Index. I made a kind of a map of all these and saw that there was this conversation or thread that was common and the, the scope for women and their the gap that was emerging was getting elaborated as we moved on. And therefore, we can say that the conversation and discourse has become far more meaningful in today's time. When we come to the last parameter that we are looking at, I mean, last measure, the gender, global gender gap index, you know, uh, right from 2006, India has been ranked in it 
from 98 to 101 to 130 out of 146. In 2018, 108 on 149. And in 2019, 112 on 113. So I just put a few years together. And the four, again, um, uh, dimensions that were looked at was health, education, economic opportunity, and the political empowerment that comes in. I then put together some of the countries that I feel I like to compare India with. You know, I like to compare India in the South Asian framework. I like to compare India in the BRICS framework, that is Brazil, Russia, India, China, Indonesia. You know, I even tried to say, okay, let's bring in Iran and Iraq. And I, I looked at some other prominent um, South, uh, I mean, uh, Asian economies like Malaysia and Philippines. And three there stood out very prominent. One was Bangladesh, because it's always known to have, uh, you know, uh, a, a very good uh, performance on its human development index and on the gender gap ratio, it ranked at 50. South Africa among the BRICS economy ranked at 17 and Philippines stood at 16 in this. So I went one step further and I said, let us see what these countries are doing and how are they measuring on these four parameters. And that's when I, I looked at, you know, India over here and on economic, uh, <clears throat> on the economic um, index, just a second. On the economic index, you could see that in 2006, we scored 110, whereas we moved very low towards 149 because we know about the lower, you know, low labor force participation rate of women. Um, which has come down tremendously uh, over 2011, 12, and 17, 18 that we are talking about. Educational attainment was 102. We have dropped to 1110, 112. Health and survival, uh, our rank was 103, and we are down to 150. And political empowerment, we ranked at 18. So you could see that in politics, the women were having some kind of a say but in the economy, maybe they are still not allowed to work. And education, somehow we have achieved the average that is there and towards health. We've always been talking about how we, as an economy, need to spend more as a percentage of our GDP on health and education. And though we may have it in quantity, the quality definitely needs to get enhanced. And the inclusion because education has also created a new kind of a caste structure because very often today you talk about which kind of education are you having in higher education is it public is it private and is private education in india private universities that are thriving today are they really inclusive in its framework is something that we need to look at so there's a lot of room for research as we move on and a lot of room to do further deep dive into this so I looked at uh, these countries, Bangladesh, India, Philippines, and South Asia, on these very pa various parameters. And there I saw when it comes to Philippines on economic participation, it was ranked at four, of course, came down to 14. Whereas when it comes to India, we were you know, really low in that front on economic participation. So Philippines was very good, even in terms of educational attainment, health survival and uh, you know 
you could see this with respect to 2006, 2020, and you could see how we have a lot to look at these countries to see how they are managing their um, you know, uh, indicators like this. It has a lot to do with culture. Unfortunately, one of the things that just doesn't get measured is the culture. How do you measure culture and cultural change? Sometimes we feel we are stuck in time with this regard. So um, I move further from, uh, this was really a comparison of Bangladesh, India, Philippines, and South Asia. On the 2020, uh, you know, gender um, uh, gap that existed in the, in the report that I looked at. Um, the other various parameters that they, that they talked about were, you know, when you talk about economic participation, it was labor force participation rate, wage equality for similar work, um, you know, estimated income, uh, you know, earned income, um, that is uh, $1,000, legislators, senior officials and managers, professional and technical workers in terms of percentage. This was, where do women rank in this? What percentage of women are on these indicators? In education, it was literacy, enrollment, um, in the different levels of education. Where we really did badly, I think, is really the sex ratios, the missing women that we talk about, and the numbers are not really looking up. It's something that is sad in this day and age where we do have a sex ratio which is so skewed. And it's, it's, it's miserable to even have this to be highlighted, you know, in an economy that is talking about development. So you go away from GDPs and you talk about the quality of, of growth or the quality of development in terms of it being inclus inclusive and what are its impact on various indicators, be it health, education, et cetera, and how inclusive are we as a society? So looking at the women, um, you know, the political empowerment, women in par parliament, women in ministerial positions, and years where female heads have been head of states. And we go further to see whether women have really um, um, uh, participated in um, various, um, you know, have been there in leadership roles in various uh, institutions, organizations, and corporate world. So obviously there is a very large number of years that are going to go into bridging this gender gap, whether it is in education, health survival, economic participation. Um, we have really been regressive and uh, South Asia, it seems would take 71.5 years to bridge this gap if we have to go forward. So I now come to my next part of the talk, which is really what are the measures that we need to take? And here is where I've been, when I talk about what is my role and responsibility uh, as a Dean of the Faculty of Humanities and Social Sciences, as a leader in education, I think it really comes in incapacity building of the new generation of students to get them to work on issues related to this. So uh, here is where I'll just, you know, uh, pitch fork and say, like when we were planning our entire curriculum for the symbiosis uh, 
school of economics or whether it is a symbiosis and you know school for liberal arts we have four schools five schools under us uh, under the faculty of humanities and social sciences the symbiosis statistical institution and then you have the symbiosis school for international studies i think everywhere development agenda and the gender aspect was not going to be neglected we had we in fact it's surprising that out of the five directors that are there almost four of them are ladies and you know even um, our pro chancellor and vice chancellor i mean it's it's so uh, lady dominated so sometimes we keep thinking are we living in a bubble because um, you know uh, what is true in a very small island is unfortunately not true in reality and this is something we are aware of so um this is where i come to my second part where i'm talking about how what are the measures to you know bridge the gender gap and you'll be happy to know that the gender ratio at my school is very skewed in favor of the female and uh, the females outnumber the males out there um, and that's something that's really nice to to say that because i think we we not only have students coming from all over the country but we have you know um, more girl child coming in whether it's at the undergrad level or at the masters level so coming to this uh, part what is the what is the agenda how do you address it and you can't really put this agenda into you know 10 11 12 points but due to paucity of time i think there's a lot that we can go deep down into um, speaking on each of these issues because you could get a legal expert who could talk about the legal recourse that has happened etc that that is there so uh, i'll go to um, we've had the anti dowry bill we've had laws which take care or which are required to address discrimination but whether it is the legal framework whether it's the judiciary whether it's the executive how sensitized are everybody to gender based issues okay today when there is a domestic violence crime or there is a sexual assault and you go into the police station or you go and make a complaint how sensitive is the framework to be able to understand these things what i'm very happy to to say is that these conversations whether it comes in through media whether it comes in through journalism very responsible journalism in some ways whether it comes in through social you know through the um through the uh Uh, films and uh, you know certain documentaries that are getting made i think um, conversations are happening but it has it's so deep rooted over the last you know centuries that uh, two decades or three decades are not going to look at it i wonder whether govind ji and me in our lifetime are going to see those things improve to the extent that we want it to so uh to address uh, you know discrimination there is a legal course as we said there's the anti dowry bill which goes back to 1961 you have a national commission for women in 1992 we talk about the right to education the food security act and everywhere of course it does include the women but they are not not all of them are really women based but here are some of the uh you know highlighted points you know which women have the right to equal pay the dignity and decency right against workplace harassment we do have a gender discrimination committee at college we do have internal complaints committees 
uh, we do um, to have conversations on domestic violence, but you can see that there is these few areas where women have a lot of legal um, uh, course that they can fall towards, but uh, uh, yet how much of it gets reported? How much of it are we aware of? Uh, we can see these numbers rising because the awareness has definitely increased. Um, what's very nice, I feel, is today what we should do with the use, you know, with the advent of technology, artificial intelligence. I think courts are beginning to get digitized. There should be an expedited manner in which uh, the courts can enhance efficiency and time management. And this is one aspect I feel that needs to address the backlog. Otherwise, people will never ever feel um, you know, confident about the fact that they're going to get justice in, in, in the right time, in the right frame. So very often things are unreported. There is no recourse or, no, or people don't fear that anything's going to happen because who's going to get into this framework of you know, litigation, et cetera. The UNFPA, uh, you know, um, talked about uh, 19 harmful practices. And uh, one of them that still remains with India, you know, out of the 19, unfortunately, it's really uh, one on the sex, uh, you know, uh, selection. And to a certain extent, it's on child marriages, which in the rural areas is widely rampant. Uh, we definitely need reforms in terms of culture change, so socio-cultural change to be able to understand something that happened in 1829 when we talk about sati and you know uh, child remarriage, etc. At that point of time, we need those kind of um, uh, bearers of this who are committed to this kind of issue on the on enhancing um, gender awareness issues and bridging the gap. Uh, you know, when we're talking about the sex ratio, uh, something that we really stand very low in, there are even medical termination of Pregnancy Act 1971, which was amended in 2002, and you have the Prenatal Diagnostic Techniques Act 1994 as amended again in 2002. You have a plethora of government schemes. I remember at one point of time, Maharashtra government was one of the ones which was very forward thinking where you know education for the girl child was free right up to standard 12. And I remember my daughter going to school and only paying 100 rupees in, in the 12th standard in a very reputed college at Ferguson at that point, you know, uh, this was in the early 2000s. So uh, the skewed gender ratio really will translate into missing girls at birth. And this is projected to be at 6.8 million missing girls at birth from now, 2017 to 2030. Um, and if you look at it over the past years, the, the amount is much, much higher. So if these girls were not missing, then if they were in the process of, you know, um, if they did participate in the political process, then maybe the votings would be different, the outcomes would be different. And this is something that has done grave injustice to the, to the fair agenda. Uh, well, uh, a lot of feminist economists have worked on recognizing the unpaid work of women and whether it's this lockdown or women in India as such, um, 
I think they spend uh, much, much more time than men um, in the work that they do. And this is something that needs to get formalized, needs to be addressed. In a patriarchal society, we have had such silos where the woman is the housewife, the man, the bread earner. And you just keep hearing these, these kind of things. We've seen these changes happen in our own environment. And recognizing the unpaid work of women is something I stay in a, in a society um, which, which is a very middle-class society. There are 130 households and we are, we, we are only three working women in that society. I mean, this is a small iota of an example. Most of them are, you know, um, uh, homemakers uh, spending hours at home and maybe have made that choice to see. But when you talk to them about their children and if they have a girl child, they definitely think about careers for their children, though they have not thought of careers for themselves. So uh, one is recognizing the unpaid work of women. And the other is women had they participated in the labor force would have taken the GDP also much higher and the quality of inclusion in various outcomes that we are looking at would have definitely been uh, much, much uh, more encouraging. When we look at women's full and effective uh, participation, uh, you know, in, uh, in labor, you can see that this has been a declining trend and especially for the age group of 15 to 25. Of course, uh, the argument there goes that they are getting into education and of course getting themselves, uh, you know, that that's the reason why they are not around. So uh, giving this, this aspect, whether it's the economic survey of India, um, which even talk, where, where is the informal sector? In the informal sector, women are there even much more. And the informal sector, according to the economic survey of 2018-19, is almost 93%. Whereas, according to Niti Ayog, it would be in the you know um, range of about 85%. So we are not even very sure about the size of our informal sector. And then in the organized sector, uh, women participation has been declining. And even when we look at it, you know, you can see it is stuck at 23.4 in total uh, as per the world develop, you know, World Bank uh, data that women are working uh, less, more in education. And uh, of course, women are a lot of times not even allowed to work. So uh, a lot of these aspects need to be uh, addressed. Feminization of agriculture. So we've always looked at how women's work should be more in non-agricultural activity. And this feminization of agriculture that has come in, is it coming out of choice? Uh, of course, it's, uh, you know, the, when we have gone to villages in and around Pune, we do a lot of work uh, on the Pune district uh, and it's 14 tehsils or talukas as we call it, blocks and the census towns and the villages, about 1900 villages in this area. And uh, we'd gone to one such village um, in Junnar Taluka, which is uh, uh, a scheduled tribe, uh, you know, where the tribal uh, people over there are pr prominent. Uh, the feminization takes place over there mainly because uh, the men 
go off to the city to work. They, with, with the Prime Minister's Gram Sadak Yojana, with the two-wheeler culture that is there, men are very comfortable riding for one and a half hour and coming into the city to work, hedging their risk and leaving the hard work not out of choice, but to the women to handle so that there, there become two incomes that come in. So, um, well, uh, that's where you see the feminization of agriculture, where almost 60%, 65% of our population is in the rural areas. Coming to the plethora of government schemes that are there, be it at the center, be it at the state, even if you look at, you you know, you look at the urban local body in Pune and you have gender budgeting happening, okay? So you've even talked about gender budgeting. We even discussed this with our master's students in urban development. And uh, I can tell you that our uh, schemes right from uh, 1990s, even way back in 80s, there were plenty of such schemes that were there. So development issues, talking about girl child was there in the past, but I think it's becoming a little more, but the amount that is being uh, spent and the gap that exists is going to be always too little too late. And therefore um, it would need multi-stakeholder perspective coming from citizens, coming from civil society, coming from academia, coming from researchers, uh, media, the interdisciplinary framework, development communication has taken a very high level today, where I think all these facts are being talked about to a very large extent. So when there are these plethora of schemes that are there, right from the Beti Bachao, Beti Padhao, you know, scheme, to the Sukunya, uh, Sukanya Samridhi Yojana, to the Pradhan Mantri Matru Vandana Yojana, or whether it was the Jandan Yojana or the very old uh, Kudambashri, you know, in 1998, which talked about prosperity and women empowerment for poverty in Kerala and the Pradhan Mantri Ujwala Yojana trying to make uh, urban poverty in terms of um, energy poverty where you're using in-house, you're using biofuels, and you know, in-house pollution that is there is being addressed. So well, uh, these are schemes uh, which are there in plenty. There are people who are even measuring the impact of these schemes and looking at it. And I'm not such a deep researcher in this area for me to be able to talk uh, in depth on these aspects. So I will go to my next point that I, I talk about where I, where I feel that the multiple stakeholder perspective needs to come in, whether it's the legal machinery, the government machinery, NGOs, CSOs. And I'm a great believer of the nudge school, whether it's Teach for India. I remember we had a conference, I think, uh, where Arjun Kumar had come in on the SDG conference. And... Uh, sensitized slum children on gender issues. And that was the whole session out there. It was not just to talk, but it was the teacher, the principal, the parents and the students talking about the nudge effect of how these lovely initiatives are making 
their uh, you know small impact on society but which need to get scaled up so that we feel those outcomes lead to measurable differences um, there is no doubt that education and health need to be at the center of it all uh, unfortunately or fortunately how you want to look at it whether it's a glass half filled half empty or the half empty that needs to be filled the public private participation has been a very um, important aspect in education it's there in health also and i remember again an anecdotal evidence that comes in uh, in maharashtra between 2015 and 16 almost 216 crores was raised through crowdfunding to see that there was good infrastructure in the school and uh, you know it even looked at the toilets it even looked at the white boards and the smart boards that were there and the kind of csr initiatives that are there um, at least from the city that i come from which i call a very smart city because of the plethora uh, of uh, initiatives that are there you talk about anything and you have you know a particular um, non governmental organization or a civil society organization taking up whether it's the mulla mutha river whether it is a shamchi ai foundation which talks about gender equality and talks about um career uh, you know guidance for girls in school girls and and now they're even in you know including boys so number of such initiatives that are there i think um, a strong education system which is inclusive is going to be a very important aspect we see today children have disagreements with their parents i uh, remember my students first year students of ba first year bsc economic students talking to me about how um, they they don't like their parents or uh, you know when the sushant ray issue was going on you know sushant uh, singh rajput's issue was going on and how parents were really discussing this and it it became kind of talk they were very very upset this was actually talked about how there are other issues to be looked into and i can see a sensitization in the new generation that comes in and uh, we though we do have a gender sensitization talk as a part of our orientation program i have to admit that there is really no need for it because we have students who are so gender sen sensitized that they come up with such issues in college and they have fests etc based on such themes talks etc which are very uh, i have a great faith in the new generation and feel that they would make a big difference compared to my contemporaries around um i now come down to anecdotal evidences you know and then i will stop and these anecdotal evidences come as what is our role uh, you know gender disparities are there uh I, I like i would say i'm the lady boss or or i i head an institution so i keep telling them that you know there's a flat hierarchy between you and me there's an open door policy but yet when you see a male boss stating something with a top down approach it gets better taken than when the lady boss talks about it in a very flat uh, kind of a scenario i've seen these things at close quarters and 
I do see these subtleties which will not get reflected in society, which will not get measured. And um, I come from a, a society where I have, I mean, I'm, I belong to a family where we've been all girls and I'm the third daughter. And I have never ever felt my parents ever say so that, oh my gosh, you know, you're the third daughter, whatever. In, in fact, uh, they would be uh, in the age group of 100 plus if they were alive, you know, so that means they were so forward thinking. So I think it's really society, it's family, it's it's a culture that which you grow with. So I think uh, we have to come out of that bubble and we have to see that really society has a lot of such gaps which need to be addressed. Um, and therefore in leadership in an organization, there are another anecdotal when evidence that I'd like to share. When you're very, you know, um, understanding of women who may be having uh, some form of, um, you know, um, uh, challenges, whether it is a health challenge or other challenges, very often, if you do give that kind of a little leeway, then there is a thing of being biased. Of course, value judgments are always there and you're going to be misunderstood in these regards. But that's where I feel I know what my conscience is saying and there are no biases in this. And therefore, we need to be very, very large hearted and inclusive in being able to be understanding. So that culture and sensitivity has to be there. When this COVID happened, I was very happy to see Relu Vesavas, Vesavas, uh, an Anganwadi worker, going into Nandurbar district, an absolute, uh, one of the um, aspirational districts of Maharashtra, you know, going to do a medical checkup, you know, and looking up on the health in this period where she would row a boat and, and take this. I think uh, there are these kind of stories. I told you about uh, the Junnar Taluka that we went to, you know, uh, and we went to some of the villages. And uh, we're very interesting. We talked to one girl out there and she turned around and said that if we didn't go to school and FIR was lodged against our parents. And therefore there was this pressure for the girl child to go to school. So this girl said that um, she went to school and then she's working now in, she's married and working in Dombivili and she gets a salary of 30,000. So when she came back to the village, she said that, um, they, you know, education was something that was made mandated even in this tribal belt of Pune district and uh, very much there. A 2014 study undertaken by Dr. Suchi and me, we were talking about urban poverty and we were talking to housemaids, you know, and we had taken a study of over 100 uh, housemaids in that area. And their main focus was not sanitation at that point of time. The Swachh Bharat Abhiyan had not come in, toilets were not the the, the part of conversation. And we kept asking them, is this what you want? And they said, no, we just want education for our children and maybe some kind of pension or some kind of a security for health. So uh, this was another point in terms of anecdotal studies that one has done and one has come out with. Uh, you know, even, even when you look at the cases of the large number of widows, uh, I'm not going to put on, I'll share this PPT with you uh, 
Arjunji so that you can put it up, you know, so that the links can be open for people. But uh, uh, because I feel I'd like to uh, concentrate more on the discussion that will accrue after this. But a large number of women who were widowed because their men committed suicide in the Vidarbha and the, you know, region. Um, many of them, the women, you have to hear their stories and they have been left with no choice and the determination with which they come out and take up and become self-sufficient is, I think, so inspirational that uh, uh, we, we really need to, you know, uh, put this in the main frame of our discussions when we are talking to people in college. Like I keep asking my, my students to read up on all this. And uh, another thing that was very, very disturbing for me when I read this piece of news, that women labor in Maharashtra who work on sugarcane fields undergo hysterectomy to avoid a few days of age loss. I think this was so, so um, disturbing that if this can happen in this day and age, we are in the 21st century where we talk about artificial intelligence, internet of things, um, technology, etc. What is the use of all this if we cannot make half of humanity live in dignity? So, uh, you know, this is my final statement on which I close that, you know, 75 years down uh, from the Bretton Woods, We've moved from quantitative measurement of GDP to, I think we should look at qualitative indicators very majorly and look at this progress. I know these days we talk about the GDP down 23% and then down, you know, seven to 9% and it's going to be bad. But I think what we need to really look at is qualitative changes. Yes, without the GDP growth, the fiscal space is going to be limited. There's no doubt about that because growth gives you, uh, you know, fiscal space to the government because you get your revenues through which you can have your government expenditure. But I think the quality of growth is absolutely what we need to look at. And it's such a paradoxical situation with so much of culture deficit that there is that while we worship, you know, Lakshmi and Saraswati, and we have, you know, Diwali is full of Lakshmi Puja, etc. And then in this kind of an environment where we worship to, to, you know, lady goddesses, we are a country full of complexities. And therefore, I end with Joan Robinson's great comment that she talks about, that whatever you can rightly say about India, the opposite is also true. Thank you so much. I'll stop sharing my screen. Arjun, would you like to invite? Uh, I think uh, I am very, very highly impressed and overtaken by. But I would keep my voice to the to the end, and uh, in summing up, and where I have uh, any kind of questions. But uh, I think let's hear from the discussant. Yes. Yes. Thank you. you. Yes, first of all, I would like to congratulate and thank Professor Jyoti Chandraman, who have, you know, in a very subtle manner tried to cover so many of her shoes from, you know, last century. And ma'am really make us believe that uh, she's really uh, talking us through this uh, online medium, but from the land of uh, Savitri Bhai Phule. So many of good stories also ma'am has shared and so many uh, stories. So without any further ado, let me call our first discussion for this deliberation. Dr. Debo Jyoti Das, who is joining us from UK, 
and dr das is researcher at university of success uk yes dr das over to you thank you professor jyoti you made a very interesting kind of gave a very interesting perspective of how we should look at gender disparity how we should look at questions of equity social justice and i think as you have rightly pointed out we have to move beyond these quantitative measurements because the qualitative discourse is somehow absent within our current kind of discussion in the context of south asia and globally and you have brilliantly highlighted how the discourse has moved from the burton woods kind of arrangement to the present context where we are kind of more sensitive in a way kind of the way you have placed it in terms of being more caring and more conscious of what the gender discourse is all about it's not all about statistics because we have to go beyond that we have to look into the kind of class formation in india the caste formation uh, the questions of dalit rights the question of a social empathy which is lacking in kind of understanding this broad discourse about gender justice i think you have moved the discussion beyond um, the question of attending or kind of addressing gender issues to bringing the real lifetime experiences of people when you kind of describe about these news reports the kind of startling stories that people are experiencing in different parts of india uh, but i would also like to kind of bring to the table uh, idea that uh, there are pockets in india uh, uh, the gender disparity is relatively better if we take the case of northeast india uh, where i come from uh, and 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 today there is a problem even in that part of india where kind of the male members of society like for example i come from meghalaya and and the khasi society is matrilineal and men there feel disempowered so this whole idea globalization modernity has also kind of in this kind of hierarchy that we have really a uh, right from the united states to the uk and even in uk there is a big problem like for example you shared with us the bbc report in fact within the bbc as an institution there is today this big gender gap between male and female you know news reporters and presenters uh, so i think uh, it's a global problem which needs to be addressed but the same time the statistics that you present the kind of historical narrative that you have presented in the context of south asia and particularly india it is kind of very disturbing like you have given comparative study of philippines bangladesh which are economically less important than india but the kind of cultural practices that they have yes. uh, is significant so the whole culture is playing um course on gender and issues of empowerment and, and how informal the whole sector is like you gave this example of sugarcane workers in in central india which is really disturbing and and we cannot expect the indian economy to become formal in the next 10 years uh, but within that informality how about the and you have very brilliantly demonstrated in the context of pune and the surrounding areas how even within tribal kind of blocks people are kind of more aware about their rights they are more uh, conscious of how education can bring about empowerment and i think one of the central theme that kind of runs through your uh, lecture was this whole concept of capacity building and i think capacity building is a important thing because we cannot always rely upon the state or the government to kind of bring about change we have to reflect back on our own societal practice so it's about empowering people it's about make aware of what they should do 
about you know uh, change i think i will not take much of the valuable time there are other speakers who have to um, kind of speak and comment on your brilliant presentation uh, but i take home these two important concepts that you introduced earlier one was the concept of nudge and the multi stakeholder participation which i feel is central today because we cannot kind of just think about one institution which can bring about change it is the participation of various which can bring change you have kind of demonstrated through your examples how change is taking shape in certain sections of indian society uh, thank you for giving me this opportunity to kind of reflect back on your kind of work which has kind of emerged out of years of experience uh, yeah thank you for that thank you so much dr das and uh, your connection was a bit unstable but anyhow yes it was yes great uh, let me just quickly go to our next panelist as a discussion for today's deliberation lecture by professor jyoti uh, chandiramani professor g shridevi uh, dr shridevi is a, a associate professor at department of economics in hyderabad central university hyderabad ma'am over to you yeah uh, thank you arjun and uh, your video yes your video is no uh, arjun video there are certain issues so i'm just uh, stopping the video because um, we have some power fluctuations actually because of which uh the no activity is not so great yes uh, so if i on the video uh, then my no problem no problem um, yes okay uh, yeah uh, thank you professor jyoti for a very lucid and systematic presentation on the various issues of the gender if i group your uh, talk into various aspects you have touched upon the productive assets of aspect of the gender and persisting inequality and ownership rights or in terms of the human rights so uh, it gives us very interesting picture of the different issues existing within the gender discrimination uh, by considering all those issues i just want to speak about the three more important aspects of the gender discrimination when we talk about the gender equality um, my uh, i i'll be focusing on when we are talking about the gender concerns uh, and uh, implementing the various programs it is important uh, to for two reasons one is there there are differences between the roles of men and women and which basically brings out the gender gaps and there is also systematic inequality within the gender groups basically uh, that what i mean is uh, women and the third gender has a less access to the resources and opportunities and low participation of the women in decision making at home as well as in policy making uh, always uh, puts them uh, with the kind of a gender discrimination this pattern of inequality is a cons i mean it it is basically a constraint to the progress of the any society uh, because it limits the opportunities of one half of its uh, population uh, but while uh, when you are talking throughout the gender discrimination i i get a feeling that all the gender groups are considered as an equal group but i have a strong feeling that within the gender different social groups and religious groups face the different level of the 
inequality. So without addressing the social inequality, what women face, can we really talk about the uh, political and economic equality? Uh, I, I shall be thankful if you can um, actually reflect on that. Uh, and well, sure. uh, no, uh, I, I'll, I'll just uh, complete. So when we, uh, why caste and gender are very important in Indian contest, especially is caste discrimination is seen by others within the boundary of that particular caste, but it was never uh, discussed outside the caste boundaries. But the kind of the caste discrimination within the gender exists has a very, very crucial role when they have access to the market. Uh, so the, the productive resources, basically, the land or access to the education or access to the healthcare, access to any kind of the government support policies. Uh, the, even if we look into the pre-colonial period, we have the dominant woman and the depressed woman. Uh, Gautama, Samhila, and endogamy is one of the important characteristics of these societies. Where we can also see the first feminist text in 6th century BC Sangha. And uh, since you come from Maharashtra, the, the Bhakti movement where uh, Devadasi's culture was also promoted in Maharashtra, Tamil Nadu, and Karnataka, basically. During the 18th century, actually, the upper caste women uh, used to be the Devadasis, which have the, they used to have the highest control politically, economically, the richest group. And culturally, they have the fine art with Almost the textbook says that 64 arts, uh, what they used to. But now the, the, in the changing contest, if you see that the Devadasi's culture is constrained to only the marginalized groups and it is a kind of a institutional prostitution basically the, at the village level. So basically what I'm trying to say is without addressing the social discrimination, can we really talk about the gender equality in a in a market space because you're being an economist i'm also an economics faculty so i i teach basically economics of discrimination so where we always try to work on the discrimination uh, in the market space basically either it may be perfect competition or monopoly whatever how the discrimination takes place among the various groups uh, and and politically also if uh, politically also there always exists a glass ceiling, because although there is a woman reservation, especially at panchayat level and various other levels, we always see that with the micro level studies, what we have conducted and existing literature. Uh, if a Dalit woman becomes the panchayat president, she'll never have the equal rights the way the upper caste women have gained it in the society the resources will not be controlled by them. So although the women are playing effectively certain leadership roles at a national level or at a micro level, but still the kind of social discrimination exists is always carried forward to identify that particular woman. 
So that, that's what, I mean, I shall be happy if you can reflect on uh, some of these issues. Thank you, Arjun. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, ma'am. Quickly, let me go to our next panelist, uh, Dr. Simi Mehta, joining from New Delhi. Simi is our uh, CEO and editorial director. Simi, please try to be brief. Yes, yes. Thank you, Dr. Arjun. Thank you, Professor uh, Jyoti, for uh, such, an, uh, such a fascinating lecture. Uh, you have so comprehensively outlined the status of gender equality and the way forward. I was, uh, I really learned a lot. Uh, I just have a couple of points to make uh, on which if you could reflect. First is I was particularly intrigued about uh, the number, the figure of 72 or some years uh, that you had mentioned over 70 years that South Asia would take to attain gender equality. While it is certainly a silver lining, if we have to uh, consider the positives, uh, to know that the future generations would be a, could be a testimony to an equal society. It is actually sad that uh, one has to wait, struggle and also suffer uh, for more than five decades from now to actually witness this if one lives through. Uh, so I would like to know more about um, how this figure was actually arrived at. And uh, if I only consider or if I'm only concerned about India, uh, uh, does it still remain 72 years or is it more? Um, would, it, uh, would it take more number of years to attain gender equality in India, more than 70 plus years? Uh, next point is, could the situation uh, be better if we are able to have better representation of women in the legislatures? Um, does it also add to the case in point uh, towards the passage of the women's reservation bill in the parliament at the earliest? And uh, my final point is that the SDGs do not explicitly mention about uh, the sexual and gender minorities, uh, the LGBTQ community. Uh, and only if one extrapolates um, the goal 10, that is to reduce the inequality among and within, within and among countries, we can reach you know, to about, um, we can reach at about um, uh, talking um, or even about creating an equal landscape uh, in totality. So um, in India and in South Asia, is there any conversation towards uh, this vis-a-vis -vis, um, uh, the uh, sustainable development goals? I would like to learn more about it from you, ma'am. Thank you so much for your wonderful lecture. Yes. Can we have a few minutes from you or you want uh, uh, to respond yeah, to What is your view? Yeah, because we know... Uh, I would really like to respond to each one. At that a, do you have a five minutes? Will that be okay? Yeah, uh, I'll try. I'll try because um, uh, I'll come back to Simi's uh, questions because that's the freshest in my mind. And mm -hmm. um, therefore, I'll address those. Uh, Simi, uh, the first point is that you talked about 72 years of gender uh, equity in South Asia. This is just something that I, I read up in... Uh, the global, uh, you know, the, the, the index, the 2020 index that has been released by World Economic Forum. Yeah. Okay, so this is nothing to do with my findings, all right? I mean, I, I just put across that this is what the narrative is. So the narrative based on a report which has been coming out from 2006 is saying this, so I have not estimated this. 
This has come from there. And in India, it would take much, much longer. Uh, and that is something very visible because it's so deep-rooted in, in my generation. Uh, when, when I say in India, it's going to take much longer. Uh, I have had six decades of existence in India and I, I therefore belong in that kind of an age group. I can see people who join me who are 18 to 20 and I can see their perspectives are far more um, you know, open, etc. So I, I therefore am very optimistic about the future because they don't come with those biases. But of course, um, um, as, we, as I told you, there was this one, one point I said that family and marriage are two institutions which can be very uh, constraining is something that has always remained with me uh, coming out of Doris Lessing's books, you know, that she's written about. And uh, a lot of children do see domestic violence. I remember one of my colleagues had had a workshop in college with talking to students and sensitizing them. And when she met me, she broke down because almost everybody had a story to tell. You know, now, now these don't get captured really, but as I said, we are, we, this, you know, that everybody had a story to tell about how gender, um, you know, um, uh, based violence, um, gender disparity, women in their very typical role, women's housework not getting recognized, the amount of work they put in is much more in India compared to what people, you know, women do abroad. And, and at the same time, they work much harder, even in their jobs, 44 hours compared to 35 hours in, you know, other, other nations. So those are certain data which are there. So that is something, uh, uh, as I said, I can't put a year or a date to it, but there are going to be decades of hard work that people like you and me have to put in to ensure that the horizon gets more approachable for us, you know, to look at in the manner in which Sri Devi ma'am talked about. How can you talk about just gender equality without talking about social discrimination? Undoubtedly, there's nothing to doubt about that. It has to be. But my talk was so embedded from an economics perspective that I didn't bring that part into my, my conversations. But most definitely, uh, social discrimination. There are multiple discriminations and multiple vulnerabilities and multiple inequalities that are there in society. In that, we're talking about inequalities or gaps that exist for women and it would be different for different, different for Muslim women, different for you know Hindu women, different for Dalits. So it would be re religion, it'll be social, it'll be cultural. Nowhere are we talking about how we can bring about culture change. Have you have you seen that captured anywhere? In fact, I was surprised. I'm, I mean, when I was talking about a culture deficit, there's actually a theory of culture deficit, but I have not studied that deeply. I mean, this is something that while I was reading up for this talk, I, I did come across something. I, I And so what you've got is from the lens of an economist, all right? But yes, it did not cover the social discrimination because that, that's a very large canvas and I would not have been able to make meaning in that. So um, uh, that is very much there. So the 72 year I've addressed, I've addressed Sri Devi ma'am's point about how you need to bring in uh, social discrimination, undoubtedly. And uh, it's not just economic discrimination. It's, it's a marriage of all, socio-cultural, etc. 
um, coming down to LGBTQ community not getting uh, reflected, I'm sure uh, the SDG targets indicators will get refined in due course of time. And it will definitely find its place. I'm very optimistic because between MDGs and SDGs in 15 years, you saw a change in the number of goals and targets and indicators. And of course, that can even be criticized as, is that all going to be achievable? In fact, how do you measure culture? How do you measure culture? Because culture is so different to every individual. It's so unmeasurable. But yet the culture that exists within you is going to reflect on the stand that you take in society with respect to LGBTQ, with respect to gender, with respect to social discrimination. I mean, you, you, you know, I don't even think my students care about, you know, there, there is no awareness about even who's a scheduled caste, who's a scheduled tribe. There is no such thought in their mind. There's no religion coming into their discrimination. And every year, you won't believe it, uh, Simi, um, we have a fest every year, every college has a fest. And it's been their initiative, student initiative that we'll have a social fest, which is always addressing whether it's LGBTQ community, whether it is body shaming, whether it is rights of women, women empowerment, it comes naturally from them. So while we nudge it in respect to research, they nudge it with respect to the activities that they are organizing. So maybe, as I said, am I in a bubble? I don't know, because that bubble makes me feel we are moving in the positive direction. All right, Jimmy? So um, as I said, again, I ended with my lovely quote, which is Joan Robinson's quote, you know, India is a country full of contradictions. So uh, I talked about that. When you talk about representation in legislation, I think what's most important is development needs, you know, development communication needs to talk about how women need to get empowered in their family. Because there are nearly 330 million households. And in those 330 million households, Women need to be empowered there. If they're empowered there, they will be there in the, in the legislative. You need to really change the culture of the men and the manner in which they think. The male way that things, especially in the patriarchal society that we have grown up with. It was very nice to hear, uh, you know, my colleague, you know, Devajyoti Dev Das, you know, saying that, you know, the Northeast, it's very different. We have so much to learn from them because they're so, so inclusive in whatever they are talking about in terms of the gender. It's a matriarchal society out there. Okay. So here, um, uh, I think, uh, Simi, I don't know whether I have, I think I've addressed all three of your points. That when you talk about it in terms of political empowerment, I think it is empowering the male child at home to understand uh, the other aspect, you know, we have to learn to have those conversations very differently. And I think the woman having a say in her home is the biggest empowerment, you know. When that happens at the micro level, you'll see a movement that would translate beautifully at the macro level. So, thank you, uh, thank you ma'am. Uh, Govind, ma'am, we have three more short questions from our researchers. If you'll allow, we can have them or you can have your uh, remarks. Govind, ma'am. 
something is wrong i will check so uh, why not anshula go ahead and ask your question can you try to be brief unmute yourself I can't hear you, Anshula. Audible, Anshula. Uh, is it better now? Yes, yes. now better. Uh, so my question uh, is linked to another SDG, which is SDG thirteen of climate action. Um, and as you were mentioning in your presentation, that our generation seems to be sensitized to a lot of gender issues. And I think another thing that our generation seems to be sensitized to is climate change. I should say climate crisis and uh, the very imminent inevitable climate collapse that is likely to follow in the coming years and then you've also mentioned uh, say it's going to take close to 100 years according to a report to reach gender parity so how do we reconcile these two things and uh, gender equality existing without uh, a sort of secure climate or um, having a secure climate without gender equality they it would won't really uh uh have to, you'll have to weave it in you'll have to knit it through so, you know, and that, so that's my question is that how how do we uh, move ahead with working on both together because uh, the climate crisis somehow does not seem to be an underlying consideration for anything um although it should be because i don't see how um, any policy for the long term uh, can really take shape without having the climate uh, uh, considerations weaved in. So that and gender equality, I would just want to know what are the existing uh, things that are happening in that sphere and what would your view on that? No, of course, they would, they would need to be taken into account. See, um, the pandemic has been a guru to all of us in, in a lot of ways. Uh, you could see how, um, you know, um, uh, you, you know, you could have a work from home, for example. Okay, with technology being where it is, um, it would, maybe it would put in more hard work for the women, all right, because then you're working at home also, working from home also, and therefore you don't have the number of hours that you put into work is very high. I'm just talking about uh, uh, a kind of a certain example that, what is it? See, both are going to exist in the years. You'll have to have policies which are going to work on both. You can't ignore climate change at all. In fact, uh, uh, we would be, it would have an impact on health. It would have an impact on health. Uh, today, what has happened is, uh, uh, you know, even the new form of education through the online mode is also having an impact on health of students. So, so there are um, what you would call side effects to everything. Climate change can't be ignored, whether it is going to have, you may have a zero water day, like you had in Cape Town. Indian cities are right there. You are in the capital of Delhi, which has uh, the worst kind of air pollution any capital city in the world can have. And my co-author, uh, Ramanath Jha, has actually written that the capital needs to move. You know, you know, if you can't change the climate there, you move the capital because you can't have a capital which is the most polluted capital in the world. You know, so um, there's nothing. They are linked because in-house pollution, indoor pollution, 
uh, which women who use their lakdi, sigdi, you know, biofuels, etc. You're breathing in that air. Therefore, as I said, I mean, you know, I actually, I'll just tell you what I did. I made my students way back in 2014 study cook stoves and ensure that they had money to raise to ensure a woman in a slum had a cook stove so that they didn't start heating water on the biofuels that they just picked up. Okay. So that energy poverty that's going to be there, uh, the... Um, air quality that's going to come down, the new kind of transport mode that needs to come in. I'm an urban economist. I'm a great propagator of free transport. Finland has it. Now, free transport, people made a, made a mockery of it when the state, um, you know, chief minister talked about it for women. You know, it was talked about the metro being free and you talk about it being revenue generation. What about the pollution and the health that it's creating, a hazard that it's creating in Delhi on the health of, of all the population? And if you did have free transport, uh, it, it, it may be unsustainable, but we need to look at it from some points of view. At least it's inclusive, but uh, the mobility to work is very, very important that gives you a higher level of empowerment. Even a woman who's tied up doing 290 hours of, uh, I mean, 290 minutes of homework, if there is a bus route which is free uh, for her to just take a ride and go out, but the air quality needs to be good. She could take a bus ride and go without thinking that she has to spend 30 rupees on the bus ride. So I think uh, I am a great prop proponent of public transport. I'm a great proponent that public transport should be made extremely affordable. If possible, it should be freed because it should be nudged. And therefore, uh, when you're looking at environment, the nudge on, on those that cause that kind of, uh, you know, um, uh, the, the pollutant factors need to be addressed. Now, cities didn't have, um, uh, the national air quality, there's, there's a, you know, smart, we talked about smart cities. Cities, there are a large number of cities where the air quality index is not measured. There is a government policy that is talking about that. Yeah. And the way the policies are changing, sometimes we are not able to keep pace with it. So those interventions or conversations on a piece of paper are there. The foot soldiers have to be people like Anjula, you, me, Simi, Sunadi, you know. If we don't do it, the government can't do everything. Oh. So it is definitely a multi-stakeholder perspective. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Professor Chandidamani. We really, I mean, I'm a great believer in terms of um, uh, in your practice and your thoughts, ideas. Uh, you have done a history of planning and uh, its achievement and, and a mix of flawed policies and practices. Huh? So that's why you ended with that John Robinson's quote. But really we see a lot more kind of, state has the responsibility. That is what one thing one has to do. We pay taxes. We pay one third of our kind of earnings taxes. For what? To create pollution, to harass women, to uh, kind of uh, kill uh, the children? No, state has, they are the duty bearers. Uh, they are, we are the duty bearers. They are the kind of responsible. They have the kind of uh, uh, 
duty to cover that. My second concern was also really that you have talked about a great deal about localization of SDGs. These ad hoc stories, which you say, they are really the innovative practices. And they are the kind of seeds of the future generation where we are going to be. So they are more than the kind of ad hoc story that would be important. I would, uh, I would also say that how, what is the really, how the major things that have changed in the, with the new generation and old generation coming together and learning from the past. SDG has made four major points or major uh, points to consider or revolutionary in nature. One is that they are saying no one is left behind in the progress. This is important. We are not coming really on the household. We are not coming on communities. So this point was okay, that binary of the gender is broken down. But the question, that does not mean that we can equate that all inequalities of the same. It is multi-layered. That would be the one of the things. So Dalit women get more kind of uh, uh, harassed, raped, gang raped, but are the others are also not safe. That would be the, and this intersectionality of caste and gender has to be seen in order to look at the totality. One cannot say that one is kind of, if we solve the problem of caste, women's problem will be solved, or if we solve the problems of women, the caste problem will be solved. If the, if the reality is so, or the discrimination is so complex, then I think the addressing that question also has to be complex. We are dealing with the intersectionality of, uh, and feminist, that is feminism really. Feminism is not only kind of as it defined that uh, questioning patriarchy, but questioning patriarchy, masculinity, and the attitudes. That would be the kind of masculine attitudes. So, so second feature of the is really of the SDGs, Sustainable Development Goals is women's equal rights to land. This is in poverty reduction. What is important, it is not only in goal five, it is in goal three that unless women have the goal three, uh, sorry, it is in three goals, poverty reduction, freedom, uh, right to food, hmm? freedom from hunger, and then in the women's empowerment. Yeah. So look at how important it is. So when we talk of not only women's economic participation, women are uh, working. I mean, whatever the labor force participation rate can save, but women are working in agriculture, women are working at home. Oh I mean, they are not really sleeping and sitting around, they are working anywhere kind of thing. Now, this is, has been unfortunate economic development, which we are questioning now. You are questioning, other economists are questioning, political economists, I am a political economist, I am questioning all these things. That, and that's why it came to the unpaid care work that if a woman gets up in the morning spend until evening, late evening, does the whole work and that work is not recognized, it is considered her duty, not work. And she's a liability kind of considered a liability and uh, she just consumes earning from the others. This is the most kind of hidden yeah. culture-based discrimination and modernity-based discrimination. It is not that the others have realized it. No country have realized this kind of thing. Now they are talking about it. And now they are working on it. So that would be the, uh, the last thing that has also UN has paid attention, but not our government so much. And all forms of violence. How much violence has increased? in public, in worse kind of supervisory, somebody was doing the work in the garment industry and in the supervisory role. And I happen to be that how much violence is there in supervisory work. 
the male supervisors where they touch what they do how they kind of in the name of making them efficient workers it is tremendous kind of thing so it is not one talk of nirbhaya or other cases but sure. violence is becoming more and more and why and home is called family and kind of it is called nurturing institute but why this nurturing institute has become <coughs> institute uh, not institute nurturing home has become the home of torture i mean increasingly so that would one has to see this kind of thing when you talk of the culture i am i appreciate so much i have also recently working on the kind of uh, so i call them a norms ki norms of what these social norms are really telling us about this so how to measure the culture and cultural change of course that can measure but not why the quantitative methods so so long i mean meghalaya is a different story is a matrilineal state but even this matrilineal state i have studied meghalaya and also have some friends in meghalaya dr das and even in that matrilineal state the two kinds of trends are going on that men are saying that the rest of india is forward because they that is patriarchal men are running the show here the women are running the show and that's why it is or all the women are not running the show really it is just the lineage and property rights women have all decision making rights are in the hands of men so we don't want a matrilineal state in the in this movement when we talk of women's dignity equality mobility we are really talking of that um, the drudgery if you call it drudgery of the home has to be shared it has to be done by both and progress also and resources also have to be shared that is would be important so econo economists so far i have talked about only about economic participation of women labor force participation of women what about the asset rights they are working on land but they don't have the right to land we don't have the data we talk of the great deal of data india is known for creating since the turn of the century about data but there is no data on the land rights of women because they are ashamed to produce that kind of data now they will take it up probably an sdg only data we have is the right hold, uh, operational holders yes. that manage and all this so we have to really kind of question these things that would be important uh, if you don't look at the gender and if you only look at equality then by itself really the women's question and the gender question is not solved uh, the famous book of thomas piketty uh, came very recently and you can say that in that thomas piketty was criticized heavily in the world bank meeting by women he why why did you not talk about the gender inequality you have given the whole history of gender inequality uh, of the social inequality, inequality economic inequality how uh, this inequality grew and he said that is going to be his future project he admitted that that has been overlooked so question is really that when we talk of the economics of discrimination or economics of inequality we need to pay attention to both intersectionality of this kind of thing we need to look at uh, really the indicators oecd undp and world bank uh, uh, world development forum they repeatedly produce this data what is the gender gap hmm? so it was earlier 106 years that women would re receive this now it is 77 i was thinking that it is somewhere close to 80 or 70 it has come down a bit so i think that is would be very very important and just one last point i wanted to make because we have really overshot the time so much 
uh, it is not only education that we are talking about. We are talking about the knowledge. What has been the role of knowledge in creating inequality and empowerment? I come from a Brahman society and I know how the Brahmins have dominated just sheer fact of knowledge. They did not have the resources. They were the king makers. Uh, and what, what atrocities they have done to, and what kind of caste system has been created. So I think in future, we need to do research on two agendas, particularly whether as economist or non-economist. One is really looking at the culture, I call them as social norms, how they play on policies and lack of implementation. That would be important. A state and communities both are affected. And second would be really what is the role of knowledge in creating inequality and lack of empowerment or empowerment for themselves. This is the very kind of basic thing that would be important for us as researchers. That's what uh, I'm saying this. And of course, the other things have been said so well and so nicely, so I don't want to repeat them. Uh, <clears throat> but your stories for innovation, I would highlight them, that these are the stories of innovation, which you call as ad hoc stories, these unconventional roles which women are playing. This would be important for all of us to look at that. Thank you so much, ma'am. It has been a pleasure learning from you and really capturing all the details because no matter how you address, there would be some kind of Absolutely. Uh, questions that would be questions make it kind of the picture complete. Thank I you. Just, I just like to say ditto to you that uh, you know you you layered my talk with so much more room for um, things, but in in forty minutes you you can't really do justice to something which which needs more than one dissertation, you know, mm -hmm. a number of them. Yeah, and um, we we have two more uh, of our okay. panelists. They have joined also. So yeah. let me first go to East India. So Nidhi, over to you. Please try to be brief. Yes. Hello, ma'am. Hello, everyone. So I'm Sneedi. I'm a researcher at Imtri and I'm joining from Jamshedpur, Jharkhand. So it is said that in India, in every 15 minutes, a rape has happened and hence it's considered as rape capital. So like what is happening with the Nirvaya Fund? Because it is said that in Telangana, when a 26-year-old vet was raped and murdered, only uh, 4 crore out of the 103 um, crore were utilized for women's safety. So why there is underutilization of the Nirvaya fund by the states? Uh, and even as Professor Kelkar said that uh, domestic violence has also increased. So why is nothing happening against this? Why is no significant action taking place over the years? And even tribal communi uh, communities are suffering when they are being evicted in the name of uh, conservation. So do you think like, are there gender gaps in economics fraternity? Uh, Very important. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I won't say that, that there is gender gap in economic fraternity, but I, you know, I would um, uh, do an Edward de Bono lateral thinking uh, method in answering why nearby funds are not used. Um, this is a common practice in uh, all the budgets that we make, whether it's a central budget, whether it's a state budget, whether it's an urban local body. Whatever budgets are allocated, all of one is the budgeted, the other is the realized expenditure. And never, I mean, implementation of projects in smart cities, Amrut, etc. You will find that there are um, JNN URM had a 41% uh, 
uh, success rate. So I have got, I'm not an authority to say why Nirbhaya funds are not utilized, but the state doesn't have adequate machinery and mechanism to address this. And as uh, Govindji said that it is a responsibility of the state, that surely is, safety surely is the responsibility of the state. Okay, there are certain things we as civil society members, as academicians, as researchers, we can sensitize our, I can sensitize my thousand plus, uh, you know, students under the Faculty of Humanities and Social Sciences. So we've done our role in a small manner, but safeties that need to come in, there is no compromise on that. This definitely needs to be highlighted further. Okay, are there those people who are taking care of you fund utilization? So when you are at Jharkhand or any other city, have you done a gender budgeting? Like I like we do, we do have a class of gender budgeting for urban local bodies. You know, that how much of it is spent on, you know, looking at it from the gender perspective. So obviously this is not happening. This needs to be addressed. All right, that, that was one point that you had raised. Which was the other one? So, Nidhi, go on. Please repeat. Yeah, ma'am. So, uh, I also asked that, uh, like as Professor Kelkar said, that uh, domestic violence has also increased. So, why is the government not doing anything against this? Especially during this pandemic, the domestic violence has increased a lot. And I even asked a question regarding, like, even tribal communi uh, communities, uh, they are also suffering, uh, like, they are being evicted in the name of conservation. So, why is nothing done against this? Uh, you know, um, domestic violence, you live in societies, you live in gated communities, you live in slums, uh, you know, you, you live, um, some of them, it's, it's how much capacity we have really to bear it. Now, uh, as I said, it really has to be discussed and talked. Again, when you talked about domestic violence, I don't know whether you heard my conversation, you know, while I was talking, that when we had this kind of conversation with colleagues and staff and students, etc., and when one person came out with her story and how the whole group came out with their story and how it was like a catharsis, you know, it was just coming out from everybody. And people came to Pune to study thinking that these are these are they from various cities all over the country thinking that these are norms that are acceptable they you know violence at homes is acceptable that you get angry about the food not being tasty a food can go wrong aapko khana bhi pakane nahi aata hai ghar se theek se sambhalte ho kya you know i mean very typical roles and therefore do you give the duster to the man and say, okay, this is your job, you could do it, fine. If you've seen it, you do it. But we do have that kind of conversations. Like, like when we have a birthday celebration in our faculty, invariably it's the lady who cuts the cake, puts the samosa, puts the jalebi, whatever in a plate and gives it to everybody. So I said, no, today it's going to be the men who are going to do it. So it's also how we train them. All right, these are years of uh, uh, generations and, and, and centuries of this kind of a way. And today we are like Govindji and I, I have worked for 35 years. So we, we really belong to a very different cult, you know, in that sense. 
but I think this is generations that are there. It's going to take a long time. So when it comes to domestic violence, still it is not reported what is the government going to do. So there's a legal framework that comes in. So is there a legal framework and awareness to that? I think those are certain things that you have to look at. Okay. Yes, let us also now wrap. Tanya, quickly to you. Yes, please, please be Thank brief. you. Thank you, Professor. It was a very informative and very amazing presentation. Professor, I'm Tanya and I'm a Master's in Economics student at Ashoka University. I'm from Muradabad. Uh, Professor, I wanted to know, like, especially in this pandemic, we have seen there's a high unemployment rate, uh, especially of educated female youth. Also, like women need some sort of flexibility when it comes to jobs. Also, in the recent decade, we can see that there's a decline of women participation in the in the labor party in the labor participation. What I wanted to know was why there has been no positive affirmation action policy taken yet by the government and the private and the public sector? Uh, you know, I think um, affirmation policies are very uh, limited in the organized sectors somewhere, which anyway, as I told you, you know, the informal sector is the major sector that they're absorbing a lot. So that's going to be a little difficult. How are you going to nudge it through the informal sector? That's something that could be uh, talked about. While you talked about unemployment, especially of women rising, there were a lot, I mean, I don't want to diffuse this fact, but there were a large number of women who became entrepreneurs also during this period. All right, uh, a small, uh, I could see that, you know, in various WhatsApp groups, etc. Again, um, anecdotal, so can't say whether this is it, but, Simple things like baking, etc., became a, a kind of a norm and people were sending out food, people were doing a lot of work from home, masks getting made, etc. So there was a lot of innovation that happened in that way. But uh, uh, women staying out of uh, the labor force, I think is a great injustice to the nation because you're um, economy on the one hand would do well, not just in terms of economy, but in terms of the quality of decision making that a woman has the ability to bring in, you know, is there. So uh, those are things that need to be, I think, when the maternity uh, benefits that are there in the formal sector for six months, you know, uh, maternity, uh, 26 weeks that they talk about. Uh, Again, culturally, how many women are allowed to work? Very often, now uh, uh, Govindji talked about a cost of homework. Of course, there's an opportunity cost. When a woman stays, stays back at home and she cooks, you could say 5,000 rupees. I'm just taking a rough example. Is what you would have paid to the cook. If she goes on her two-wheeler to drop the children, you know, one is standing in front or two of them on the back, she is saving maybe 3,000 rupees of the rickshaw fare or the bus fare that is going in. In Pune, women have been so uh, multifaceted. So again, there is a certain earning that is there. That opportunity cost is not measured of what the woman does. All right. She's teaching the children at home. If they went for tuitions, there's something. It could mean it could be almost equivalent to 15,000 rupees. Um, 
if you sat at home. So a large number of women who do sit at home is because they are not getting jobs which offset this opportunity cost. I've had conversations in this regard, but there's no real research hypothesis which has been tested, but it is the opportunity cost. One, it is the cultural fact that are we allowed? Three, you know, women can't come back late. So we need to get back. We have to go back and do the work at home. So I think this unfair disproportion of the silos and the genders that we have, this is a woman's job and it's a man's job. Yes, we are in a society with different responsibilities, but I'm sure you could have house husbands and you could have working women, you know. So, I mean, it's a very unorthodox uh, way of looking at it. And uh, I think we need to look at it, not just with this, but what Simi also said was inclusive of the third gender, which is so important because we need to really leave no one behind in our discourse that we are having. Yes, we have, uh, I think, much over our time also <laughs> extended. Why not uh, to have uh, uh, some concluding remarks by uh, uh, Govind ma'am? Okay. And also, uh, Jyoti ma'am, if you'd like to just... No, I think I've answered everything, so... Yes, yes. Uh, no, just the concluding thoughts, whatever you have. In just one, two minutes. Yes, ma'am. Govind ma'am, over to you. One or two sentences, Jyoti, as a concluding uh, thought. Uh, well, um, what I captured in today's talk is not uh, really an entire canvas. It goes so deep into roots on so many fronts. But I do feel that these conversations have started. Yes, as I uh, look at it, uh, maybe one of the things I'm going to take away from here is one when my next PhD student comes in, I will probably definitely ask her to start measuring women's work in terms of opportunity cost and look at it from that point of view in the Indian society. Um, but the social and economic factors that Sri Devi talked about, how can we not, how can we ignore, um, you know, social discrimination? Undoubtedly, we cannot, because there are so many discriminations that come in, whether it is gender discrimination, income discrimination, um, you know, uh, social discrimination, uh, and religion discrimination that comes in. And today, it's even an education. Knowledge has also created a new class, Govindji. Yeah, yeah. It has created a new class of the role of, role of knowledge in creating inequality. That's what I'm saying. Absolutely, absolutely. Because it has uh, definitely uh, people are willing to pay. It, it's become so exclusionary uh, to a class of certain select people also. So that is something that needs to be looked at. Thank you. Yes, go in, ma'am. I, yes, I learned so much. Okay, that is the first thing, kind of thing. And particularly uh, about two things, I have a bit of unorthodox views. One is that uh, social norms, which I call it in the name of culture, that certainly can be measured. Policies can be made questioning the social norm. Hindu Succession Amendment Act 2005 is kind of against the social norms, against the, against the cultural change, women getting the right to uh, uh, property, uh, ancestral property. Uh, and on par with sons. So this is the social norms. If society and the government really initiate this kind of change, that definitely can happen. Um, Sunidhi, uh, Jharkhand, and other kind of states. I mean, uh, even when we talk of the discrimination, I have just completed a book, I mean, which is published by Cambridge University Press. 
about violence against, uh, on uh, uh, witch hunts in India and in Africa and kind of things. Now, if we say that we want to uh, be, and I'm a big believer in kind of uh, indigenous culture, so it is not really that kind of thing. So I think we need to really look at the dignity, equality, mobility, freedom of women. I, I am a great follower of Amartya Sen, who says freedom is kind of the really determines, it liberates people. And I live in North India or in Delhi, the so-called rape capital, we don't, we can't go out in the evening. Women can't go out in the evening. So what kind of, what kind of youth culture we are talking about? These are the youth also who are attacking these women. So this is the, our youth, of course, women youth, women part of the youth have gone far ahead in terms of their demands, in terms of what they want to do. But men, male youth still thinks that they are the privileged lot. There is some change, but not uniform change. Only very kind of minority, tiny minority of the male youth is in favor of this, who feel ashamed of that this kind of violence against women is happening. So, <coughs> I mean, these are the teen or post-teen almost or teenagers who are committing this kind of Nirvaya and Hathras case and all this. And how do we say that? How we overlook this kind of thing. This is the reality. And this is happening day and day out in green revolution area of UP, in emerging economy of India. This is really kind of sad. And that we say what kind of society we are living in. And we shy away from everything. Bangladesh can change. Bangladesh indicators has gone ahead. Bangladesh was as traditional or much traditional if you think of a kind of a Islamic culture from and why they have changed, why their women are engaged in kind of um, uh, in factory production, why we are shutting our women and labor force participation rate is going down, why we are letting them work in agriculture and not giving them the land rights. So I work on land rights. I also work on energy access. And when the cylinder was given to women in women's name, irrespective of whether she's married or not married, but we go, we enter the passport line and they say, are you miss or missus? What our marital status has got to do with this? Now people are coming out of this mentality, Mr. and Mrs. so much kind of thing. They need to know your sex and gender. So call them Miss, MS or not kind of thing. These changes are happening now. There is also provision now, now those who say that we don't want to say anything or they will say third gender. But this change is so, so minute that it really doesn't reflect. And unless the government takes it as a mission, it will not change. That is what I'm saying. Of course, the community, I, I do not take any government, this government or the earlier government, lying down and saying, oh, India is too big and this is the, our culture and we cannot do this. This is nonsense. I mean, we have to really give right to dignity to, uh, to every, member of the, uh, every member of the society and not only talk about whether they are LGBTQ or they are women I may, or they are Dalit, they have the right. On the Dalit question also, I wanted to say, in, even in Dalit question, what I've learned is really that there is kind of lot of problem by there are double oppression. They are, they are oppressed because they are Dalits and they are also oppressed because of the male attitudes. That also one has to see. So this double oppression of women within Dalit or triple oppression within the indigenous community has to be understood. And they are not on par which is applying. That is what my 
my learning has been. But thank you very much. I don't want to go <laughs> in terms of details, but over the years, I mean, one can feel that why, what change is happening and what change is not happening, that is also, and why this change is not happening. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much, ma'am. And uh, uh, quite aptly, ma'am has also said that we need to nudge. That is why uh, we are nudging with our this gender, gender gap series to, you know, uh, discuss about these issues. And also, uh, ma'am highlighted this point very start at her presentation only, that one thing which is required is nudge. So as also our chair is mentioning that, uh, like the success of Swachh Bharat Mission, this agenda of uh, economic empowerment of women or uh, having giving the economic right has to be mainstreamed. Uh, so uh, thank you, everyone. Thank you, uh, uh, Jyoti, ma'am, for uh, coming here and uh, presenting so many plethora of, you know, issues and and also taking all the questions and we really exceeded our, our time limit i would like to thank everyone uh, uh, briefly anshula can give a formal vote of thanks anshula yes yes for the records please uh, so thank you again uh, professor jyoti samiram can't hear you uh, is it better now ma'am yes yes uh, thank you, uh, Professor Jyoti Chandramani, for taking out the time uh, to deliver such a wonderful presentation on um, a very interesting and a very pertinent theme and giving rise to such a, a good discussion. Uh, so thank you for taking out the time. Uh, thank you, Professor Govind Kilkar, for chairing the session and for, uh, for your thought-provoking inputs as ever and uh, leaving us with a lot to think about in terms of uh, considering the intersections whenever we uh, uh, consider uh, this theme of uh, gender equality and SDGs. Uh, thank you, ma'am. Uh, thank you to uh, all the discussants, uh, Dr. Debo Jyoti Das, uh, Dr. G. Shri Devi, uh, Dr. Simi Mehta, Sunidhi, Tanya. And uh, thank you to the IMPRI team, uh, co-organizers, Gendev Center for Research and Innovation, Delhi Post, and to everyone who uh, tuned in to watch uh, here on Zoom or on Facebook or is watching later on YouTube, we hope you uh, continue to tune in for further episodes of Gender Gaps. Thank you, everyone, and uh, have a good evening or good night. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Jyoti, ma'am. Yeah. Yes. I'll take a leave now. Okay. Yes. Have a good night. Yeah. Thank you, thank you Gobindji. Thank you, Arjunji. And thank you, the lovely team that you have. It was brilliant talking to all of you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.